Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Privateer Station, and today we're bringing you another special. This excerpt is from an interview by Ruslan Leviev to the show Popular Politics. The Navalny guys. Original show aired at the end of February, but it still remains a valid viewpoint on the overall situation on the front. Popular Politics team together with Ruslan, a Russian military expert in exile and co-founder of the investigative group Conflict Intelligence Team, analyzed the current balance of power on the front. Does Russia have the resources to continue the war? And how long can the military conflict last? What specifically could change the situation? What types of weapons from the West could become critical turning point for Ukraine? This one is brought to you courtesy of N. Enjoy. Ruslan Liviev now joins us on air. Ruslan is a Russian military expert and co-founder of the Conflict Intelligence Team, an independent investigative organization. Ruslan, welcome. Hello. Please tell us whether you have seen the plan we were just discussing and how soon do you think it could be implemented? Unfortunately, I haven't I haven't seen it. Then let's ask you to present your point of view. Today it's February 24th and it's clear that it's been a year, but the laws of war are not always obeyed within such a time frame. In a recent interview, Kirill Budanov, Ukrainian intelligence chief, compared the war to a soccer match and said that we are somewhere around the 70th minute with a score one-to-one. How accurate do you think this comparison is, and what analogy would you give to those who don't understand military science? Here it's worth noting that, unlike Budanov, I am not a reconnaissance officer. I don't have access to the information like he does, including from Western partners. So he is likely more informed than I am. Based on what I observe and what I know, I don't see such opportunity to speak so optimistically that we are literally on the verge of a turning point after which everything will end quite quickly. On the contrary, based on what I see, what agreed plans there are for the supply of military aid and the timing of this supply, and what exactly will be supplied. I am absolutely certain that the war will not end this calendar year. So unfortunately, we will still be in a state of war in 2024. Of course, I can't predict situations like a blow with an iron pipe to Putin's head. That's impossible to predict. But as far as the development um, of the situation on the battlefield is concerned, I would say that this year the war will not end. 
Ruslan, you surely remember how it all started on February 24, 2022. The Russian authorities changed the reason for the war multiple times. Initially, they interpreted it as uh, as the defense of the population of the Donbass region, the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk People's Republic. Please tell us, what have they been able to defend there, in quotes? That is, how has the situation changed after February 24th in the territories that were originally formally the target of the Kremlin's military? Well, as we can see, even in the days leading up to February 24th, in a way, they even protected the population of Donetsk and Lugansk more than they do now. I am referring to the fact that many are already forgetting that literally somewhere in the week before February 24th, there was an evacuation declared from Donetsk. And in general, there were entire buses from the Donetsk region that were taking people to Russia. Local population and the government of Russia organized refugee camps and tent cities in the Belgorod region in Russia on the border with Ukraine. But then February 24th came and everything was just shut down. And now a year has passed since this massive invasion, and the civilian population in Donetsk still remains. Donetsk is periodically under fire, which sometimes causes civilian deaths. You might ask, where is the protection of the population now? If you started your evacuations then, why did you stop them? Why didn't they continue it? Well, there was no such goal as protection of the population, apparently, and the Russian government didn't care about the people. Moreover, compare the numbers that the authorities of these self-proclaimed republics presented. How many civilians died in the previous eight years of the war? On average, five to ten people died per year. But now even more civilians have died from these territories than in all the previous eight years of the war. Of course, that's why talking about protecting the population has nothing to do with the matter. The Kremlin was more interested in this political adventure to seize a number of Ukrainian territories. But the main goal was, of course, to destabilize the current government in Ukraine and replace Zelensky with their own puppet, Viktor Medvedchuk, and to keep Ukraine in the orbit of Russian control. You use the word adventure, and I think it partially but very well reflects the audacity with which this huge, massive operation was conceived. With what nerve, with what recklessness Vladimir Putin and his subordinates rushed to implement this plan? What do you think, as of today, what resources does Russia have left? We heard recently even the news that Russian soldiers are entitled now to military leave once every six months, which makes it sound as if it's at least for another six months Putin plans to organize and prepare his resources. What has happened over the course of this year with human resources and military production? Well, we see a number of serious problems in the industrial complex, which mostly concern the defense industry, since I do not cover civilian industry. The production rate is clearly not keeping up with the demand for tanks in terms of bringing them into a ready state from the reserves, as well as producing new ones to replenish all the losses. And the same goes for solving the problem with ammunition. 
In the past two days, there was a discussion between the Wagner chief Prigozhin and the Russian Defense Ministry, where Prigozhin criticized the military department, saying that some ammunition is not being provided to him. Well, some media channels published documentation to confirm that. On the one hand, Prigozhin is right, that there are artillery shells in the arsenals, and he might not be wrong about it. But if you look at their condition, they're all second or third category. So at least they need to be restored and repaired before they can be fired. Also, some of these shells are simply useless. They have completely rusted and are unusable for use, unsuitable for use. And to restore these shells, they need to be moved into the specialized factories, where they will be put in order. Apparently, these factories are also not coping with the rate of consumption of ammunition, hence the shortage of shells not only in the Wagner group, but even in the Russian military, as they also report. We it was noticed yesterday that there were they were transporting in Russia by rail the reserves of BTR-50P armored carriers, at least two such vehicles were visible. This armored personnel carrier was adopted in the Soviet army in the 1950s. And of course it has long been removed from service or production. Its armor is very thin, so it can be pierced by almost anything. It is far behind modern technology. But apparently the reserves of the BMP-1 and other more modern infantry combat vehicles are running out. Therefore it is necessary to switch to older models of weaponry. So there are problems, but nevertheless, as we can see, despite these serious issues, there are enough people, forces and equipment to continue at least until 2024. Then the question arises, Ruslan, what should be added or changed so significantly that we can say that we are approaching the end of this war and one side has some huge advantage to end this meat grinder? There should be different weapons, and they should be mass-produced. What should happen? Well, even in the question, part of the answer was heard. There should be an advantage, and primarily the advantage refers to artillery, the installations and ammunitions for them. On most fronts right now, and both Ukrainian and Russian military personnel are talking about this, there is parity. That is, both sides have approximately the same resources in terms of the number of arti artillery and shells, and there is no significant advantage of either side. We also see that the promised Western equipment, such as tanks and infantry fighting vehicles, in terms of numbers, only replenishes losses and does not provide a serious advantage in terms of quantity against the enemy. The delivery timing of the promised equipment is particularly important. Therefore, currently no one has this advantage. The only thing that caught my attention was the radically new type of weapon that was promised, but which will mostly, most likely arrive by the end of, this, of the year. And that can seriously change the situation. It may, may not immediately lead to a direct path to victory, but it can certainly transform the situation if a sufficient quantity is provided. I mean, first, the JDAM kits that turn unguided bombs into corrected long-range precision bombs, and secondly, the GLS-DB shells that hit targets at a range of 150 kilometers. Roughly speaking, these are HIMARS and steroids. 
When the original HIMARS arrived, they fired shells to 80 kilometers, which had a serious impact on the war, as Russia had to urgently move all command posts, all ammunition depots, and all military locations, which significantly complicated logistics for the Russian army. If they have to step back to 150 kilometers, the Ukrainians will be able to cover all of the occupied territories, including the Crimea. This will be a gigantic problem for Russia. If many GLSDBs uh, will be provided, this could be a turning point in the war. Of course, it is important to receive supplies of other weapons too, such as artillery shells, combat and infantry vehicles, and tanks in sufficient quantities. Regarding the question of tanks, during our broadcast, urgent news came that the first Leopard 2 tank will already be transferred to Ukraine today. It was announced by the Defense Ministry of Poland, who said that their Prime Minister Morawiecki had a toward Kyiv with 14 tanks. From the arithmetic point of view, 14 is not a very large number. But we are now talking about Leopard 2 tanks. What do you think? Has this large, complex and voluminous process of transferring tanks begun? And can Ukraine count on other serious weapons following the tanks? Of course it began, the moment when the decision was made to supply these tanks, and when the first Ukrainian so soldiers went for training on these tanks. We saw them in Germany, where they are trained on leopards, and in Britain, where they are trained on challengers. Regarding Abrams, there is silence, just a promise, that the first one will arrive at the end of the year. But for now there is nothing said about the training process either. But yes. The process has begun, and the main problem with this process is that it is very stretched over time. The first dozen tanks will now arrive from Poland. Unfortunately, they will probably be idle for now, because the first tank crews are not trained yet. It takes a lot of time to train, to train a crew at all stages, at least three months, as we talked about it in our previous broadcast. And since the decision on high-profile training was made recently, these tanks will simply stay idle in Ukraine for now and can be fully used closer to summer. That's why the process is unfortunately so long. Another point that we also noticed, which is not yet entirely clear, but was not previously announced, is that there have been photos and videos of one helicopter, the UH-60 Blackhawk, which was in the possession of the Ukrainian Air Force. We don't know if it's planned, uh, if it is planned to deliver more of them, or how many have been delivered so far. But there is already one photograph and one video of such a helicopter in the hands of the Ukrainian army. This has not been publicly discussed, but apparently Ukrainian crews have already been trained on this helicopter since it's already been flying. Ruslan, may I ask you a question about the Allies? We know who is helping Ukraine with weapons, finance and instructors, and we also know who wants to continue to help. They openly talk, to, talk about it. Who is helping Russia? Who can be called a real military ally, not just a political one? Who is providing real military support, weapon developments? Whom would you consider to be accomplices to what the Russian army is doing now on Ukrainian territory? Do you remember at the beginning of the war, there were talks that whole battalions were being sent from North Korea? In the end, how did it all turn out? Regarding weapons, Iran definitely provides them to Russia. We also know that it's not a secret that one, the 136 and 
131st Shahed drones, which were shot down in Ukraine, were apparently from Iran, along with the specialist instructors who trained Russian soldiers. We have not seen objective data to confirm this, but Western intelligence has talked a lot about it in their articles, so it's probably true. Well, because people need to be familiarized with new types of weapons. North Korea is also involved, and Western intelligence shared satellite images showing a supply of weapons by rail, as they said, to be delivered to the Wagner Group. So it turns out that North Korea is also involved. And in principle, it is logical, because they have enough reserves that that are now very necessary for Russia. So North Korea and Iran are the two main countries that are somehow helping with weapons and something similar. Syria, however, cannot help much except politically. Plus, there are also some countries that are politically somewhat dependent on the Kremlin regime. These are the countries that voted against the last UN resolution, calling for Russia to withdraw its troops from Ukraine. There were, I think, six countries that voted against it. These are Russia's political allies. Of course, I forgot about Belarus, which constantly sent tanks and provided training grounds. Thank you for watching us so that we can continue our work. Support us by sponsoring or clicking the thank you button under this video to make your important contribution to the fight against propaganda and Putin personally.